Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Trump's Castro-like long and boring speech as he announced his run for the presidency in 2024 to a captive audience of Trumpsters at Mar-a-Lago who were prevented from leaving early by the staff as even Fox News cut away from Trump's big announcement. Joining us is Christopher Beam, the Managing Director of the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. He's also co-host of the Democracy Works podcast, and his latest book is The Seven Democratic Virtues, What You Can Do to Overcome Tribalism and Save Our Democracy. We'll discuss his article at CNN, Goodbye Carrie Lake, and Good Riddance to All Election Deniers, and whether the rebuke of the Stop the Steal movement in the elections will be enough to drive a stake through the heart of election deniers like Carrie Lake. Then we'll examine today's press conference at the Pentagon, at which the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs outlined the efforts of the Ukraine Defense Contact Group of almost 50 nations who are supplying arms to Ukraine to defend itself against Russian aggression. Joining us is Aram Shabanian, who is the Open Source Information Gathering Manager at New Lines Magazine. He recently taught non-proliferation and terrorism studies at the Middlebury Institute for International Studies at Monterey, where his research focused on the Cold War and contemporary histories of Eastern Europe and the Middle East. Then finally, we'll get an inside look into the black box of Chinese communist leadership with insights from a researcher who has had access to the Politburo's archives and speak with Frank Dakota, Chair Professor of Humanities at the University of Hong Kong. His books include The Discourse on Race in Modern China and People's Trilogy, which documents the lives of ordinary people under Mao, and How to Be a Dictator. We will discuss his latest book, Just Out, China After Mao, The Rise of a Superpower. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Christopher Beam, the Managing Director of the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. He's also the co-host of the Democracy Works podcast, and his latest book is The Seven Democratic Virtues, What You Can Do to Overcome Tribalism and Save Our Democracy. And he has an article at CNN, Goodbye Carrie Lake and Good Riddance to All Election Deniers. Welcome to Background Briefing, Christopher Beam. Thank you very much, Ian. Pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Christopher. And before we get into the fate of Carrie Lake and the other election deniers, uh, let me just touch on uh, Trump's announcement uh, last night in the ballroom of Mar-a-Lago. Much of the coverage, I think, has been pretty accurate in the sense that it was kind of sad, depressing. <laughs> I mean, it was so bad that apparently the staff at Mar-a-Lago were preventing the crowd from leaving. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's true or, true or not, but I saw the same report. Yeah, right. 
So what did you make of the last night's announcement? Well, I must confess, I deliberately did not watch it. Um, and I did not watch it because I feel like it is wrong. It's a mistake for people like me and you to jump whenever he says jump. And given that we knew what was going to happen, you know, knew that he was going to announce, I just didn't feel any burning desire to hear that again. And I read the review, you know, read the recounts or the reports that you mentioned. And and it, it does seem clear that, you know, there was, you know, a, a lot of the same greatest hits. Uh, there does seem to be that there wasn't much mention of the 2020 election, uh, which is interesting, and not a lot of talk about races like Kerry Lakes and whoever's. But it is this basically the same script. And and I just wonder if that's going to work this time. I mean, maybe it will. There's still, you know, the the last poll I saw showed that he had well over like, you know, 40 percent of the of the Republican voters um, still connected to him and or, you know, supporting him. And the reason he got elected last time was, you know, it's just pure game theory. He just had enough that in such a crowded field, he was able to just kind of stay ahead of everyone else. And as they all dropped off, he never went anywhere. And if you think about what is likely to happen in 2024, either it'll be shut down to him and DeSantis, in which case, you know, then you'll have a a real uh, cage fight, or you're going to have a lot of other people join in, in which case Trump is going to have this structural advantage just because of how many people he's going to bring uh, automatically to support him. Well, Trump actually did mention the 2020 campaign. Is that right? Well, let me finish that because what he said was that basically that the Chinese secretly financed Biden's victory. <laughs> I'm not making that's a, that up. That's a good trick. And, and it really is remarkable to me that, you know, two years later, uh, 60 court cases, how many audits, not one shred of evidence, and yet majority of Republicans still believe from polls that I saw just from last month that, uh, that you know, uh, Trump should be president. I, I just, I find that really astonishing. The willingness to just adhere to this belief in the absolute absence of evidence and actually in the in the face of overwhelming evidence that it did not happen, it still remains. So, you know, I don't know, at some point the fever is going to break because, you know, the folks who believe this are, are just, their brains work just as well as yours and mine. And so eventually it's just going to go away, but um, it's taken a lot longer than I thought it would. Well, you weren't alone in not watching last night's announcement by Trump that he's running for president 2024, the major networks didn't carry it, and CNN cut away after a while, and even Fox News cut away for after a while. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah. So. Yeah, well, it, it went on for like an hour and 15 minutes. It's like yeah. Castro-esque in terms of its length. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yes. 
the Mussolini of Mar-a-Lago, as uh, right, right, uh, as Dana Milbank described him, who was also there. I read his report; it was pretty funny, actually. Mm-hmm. Sad though that this is our politics. This is the guy that won't right. go away. This is the worst president in American history, a complete calamity, and a incredibly assiduous divider. So we're still going to have we'll have paralysis in the house for sure, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. division in the in the country as long as he's around. So, well, and, thought, and and those that die has been cast. I'm not saying this is what I wish, but you know, if if Donald Trump gets hit by a bus tomorrow, Trumpism is not going away. Um, it is it has been a very useful tool by which to uh, organize and motivate a. a, a significant swath of, of the American body politic. And, um, and because it's worked, it's not going to go away. Now, mind you, it, it worked significantly less well in the election we just had. And I've always said that it's going to take two uh, serious defeats. And once that happens, then the incentive structure will change. And, um, and, and Trump and maybe even Trumpism will begin to evaporate. But until then, you know, um, politicians follow their self-interest beyond and before anything else. So, Christopher Beam, let's talk about your article at CNN, Goodbye, Carrie Lake, and Good Riddance to All Election Deniers. You mentioned that Republican Congressman Dan Crenshaw of Texas just before the elections on his podcast, admitted that it was all a charade, the stop the steal and election denying was all a charade. And he said, he admitted that most Republican lawmakers know it's true, and quoting him, it was a lie. The whole thing was always a lie, and it was a lie meant to rile people up. So if that's the case, it didn't rile up enough people. And uh, the, I, I imagine the assumption here is that it will fade, right? That the energy around the lie? Well, I mean, I was frankly very surprised to um, to see the results in, in the election we just had. Matter of fact, I originally pitched CNN uh, about my fears that what was going to happen and what were going to happen, what was going to happen if election deniers lost or won. And then it turned out that did not happen. I mean, it's, it's not like there, there were some that got elected, but they were far the minority and most of them were incumbents. And, and even when they were elected, there was, already, there was always somebody in that state who was not and who was likely to, you know, uh, try to subvert any efforts they might bring forward. So I, I'm surprised. I mean, like I say, the last, um, the last polling I saw um, you know, most Republicans believe that a majority of Republicans believe that, you know, Trump was the rightful winner of 2020. And if they watched exclusively Fox News or, you know, even more so OAN and whatever else, um, those numbers went even higher. Right. And the fact that those at, given that um, prelim, the fact that they didn't win is both a surprise and uh, you know, a, a, a great outcome for democracy. Well, you write in your article, according to States United Action, an election law monitoring group, at the end of the week, 
Of the 94 races this year for Governor, Attorney General and Secretary of State, only five non-incumbent election deniers won their races. Now, there were almost 300 of them. So are you talking about the the more important and visible races, particularly the ones in the swing states? Yes. Yes, I am. And, and, you know, so it, it is one thing to say, here's a county clerk in X county is an election denier that's and that person got elected that's bad if an election denier gets elected to the uh post of governor and is responsible for appointing a secretary of state as was is in the case in in pennsylvania for example that's much worse and so yeah i i do think you need to you know weigh these um you know appropriately and you know, um, I'm not saying that there there were not uh, races that were lost that I w- or were won that I wish would have been lost, but not nearly as many as I was um, afraid was going to happen. Well, one of the races that, of course, was very key uh, to the who controlled the Senate was the Senate race in Nevada, and Trump himself mm-hmm. had suggested that the Nevada U.S. Senate race was marred by a corrupt voting system. But interestingly mm-hmm. enough, Adam Laxalt, who lost, even though he's an election denier, he did concede, I think he's conceded, at least he didn't contest the results. And right. I imagine the reason was that the Republican governor on the ticket won handily. So right. is, is that the reason? In other words, how can you complain that you lost in the same election Another Republican won. Well, you know, I mean, I don't want to um, be too snarky about this, but in the 2020 election, the the Republicans did fairly well. They picked up, I think, 15 seats in the Congress, and up until the runoff, they had only lost two seats, right, in in the Senate, and and there was virtually no um, outcries about cheating in any of those elections, right? It was only the presidential election. And, you know, I've said if if the Democrats were cheating, they really did a crappy job of it. They could have done a lot better, right? They could have, like, given, you know, Biden a majority. Uh, you know, I mean, I, it, it just doesn't, it's not logical. And so my my point is that I don't know how much, you know, logic is going to um, constrain an election denier from making a similar claim about his own race. And yet, and, and indeed, that is exactly what you're seeing from some folks. You know, um, you saw it from Tucker Carlson that very evening. And, you know, I've seen it on, on a Twitter of, you know, ardent election deniers who are just, this is the, this is the tape they play. And so they come up with these um, you know, ex- explanations for what happened or even not, not even explanations, just I don't believe that's possible or something had to happen or it took too long for the vote to be counted. Just ways to um, undermine people's uh, faith in the election without, you know, without any evidence. So, I, you know, I mean, I do feel like it is it is true that, you know, Mastriano lost by like, what, 14 points. It, you know, it's, it's a stretch to make an argument that, you know, that cheating, you know, took that away from you. That's, you know, hundreds of thousands of votes. And, you know, as you say, with Laxalt and the, and the governor, it's, it's um, hard to say, 
you know, they cheated for me, but not for not for thee. But I also think that it's, it, you know, it, it comes down to it's very hard to organize and orient um, Republican uh, outrage about, you know, a um, hundred different races or even a dozen different races all over the country. That was one advantage that it was all focused on the president. That was one national election, one person who was leading it. And, and it was pretty easy to orient yourselves around that. It's much harder when, you know, for somebody in Massachusetts to get excited about what's going on in Arizona, for example. Well, just in the last couple of minutes, Christopher Beam, you mentioned here that the Georgia Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, had a bipartisan gathering of secretaries of states on Monday said that the elections were, this was a vote for normalcy. Uh, voters were looking for and rewarded character. They were looking for people who could get the job done. They rewarded competence. So do you think that that's the explanation in the sense that we have every reason to be hopeful that enough Americans feel strongly about democracy uh, and to preserve it? In other words, have we put a stake through the heart of Carrie Lake and her a cadre of election deniers? Well, I hope so. I, I think it's way too early to, to you know, be, be dancing on the grave of an of election denial, especially now that Donald Trump has re-entered the race. But I do think that, um, you know, you know, let's understand what we mean by normalcy. Normalcy means that we go back to regular fighting, Right. We all accept the rules, and then we fight like hell to get our candidate in office. You know, that's what normalcy means in a democracy. It doesn't mean, you know, that we're all going to agree, but it means that we are going to agree about the rules of the game, and we are without, uh, and unless we have firm and and compelling evidence, we're not going to uh lie about elections and, and pretend that we won when we really didn't. If we can get to that, um, then, yeah, our democracy will be much better off. Well, Christopher Beam, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. I enjoyed the conversation. Likewise. And again, I've been speaking with Christopher Beam, who's the Managing Director of the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. He's also the co-host of the Democracy Works podcast, and his latest book is The Seven Democratic Virtues, What You Can Do to Overcome Tribalism and Save Our Democracy. And he has an article at CNN, Goodbye Carrie Lake and Good Riddance to All Election Deniers. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining today's press conference at the Pentagon at which the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs outlined the efforts of the Ukraine Defense Contact Group of almost 50 nations who are supplying arms to Ukraine to defend itself against Russian aggression. Back 
You can't see my hurt inside. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Aram Shabanian, who is the Open Source Information Gathering Manager at New Lines Magazine. He recently taught in Nonproliferation and Terrorism Studies at Middlebury Institute for International Studies at Monterey, where his research focused on the Cold War and contemporary histories of Eastern European and the Middle East. Welcome to Background Briefing, Aram Shabanian. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And there was a briefing today at the Pentagon with uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Milley. And they've been meeting regularly in the la- over the last few days, starting in Brussels and then at the Pentagon with the Ukraine Defense Contact Group. And what they were saying today, obviously they were asked a lot of questions about the missiles that landed in Poland, the source of which is still not being determined. But I'm interested in finding out more about the Ukraine Defense Contact Group. Millie and and Austin said there's about 50 members and that they're really ponying up a lot of military equipment. The Canadians, for example, are supplying winter gear to the Ukrainian soldiers, which the Russians don't have, apparently. What do you know about the Ukraine Defense Contact Group? Well, I, I know that it's NATO members make up the core of the contact group. And beyond that, it's non-NATO allies or major non-NATO allies, NATO partners, things like that. Countries that over the years have assisted the U.S. and its NATO allies in operations from Iraq to Afghanistan to Libya are now stepping up to assist in Ukraine. Um, and so, of course, like I said, there's the core members of, of the alliance, and then there's any countries that want to be seen as working with the alliance. They want to be seen as on the right side, so to speak, of the alliance's opinions. And so that that's why we're seeing a lot of these countries stepping up that might not have a direct security interest in Ukraine. I have been unable to find an active working list of current members of the organization, but I know... The, the, the members that are that make up the core, again, are Germany, France, the U.S., U.K., things like that, that have been sending a lot of the more visible um, equipment, namely things like uh, the 90 T-72B tanks that were uh, donated by the Czech Republic and then upgraded by the U.S. and the Netherlands, things like that, where you see multiple countries coming together to coordinate the delivery of equipment. Because individual countries are already contributing equipment. A lot of what this contact group is doing is saying, okay, if, if you send X equipment, we'll give you Y to replenish it and work with you on Z later down the road, et cetera, et cetera, if that makes sense. So what were the air defense systems that they were talking about? Obviously, it's something that Ukraine desperately needs now that Russia is raining missiles down on civilian targets and in particular infrastructure. And that was a lot of what the defense secretary Austin and Milley were talking about that Russia is conducting war crimes. They they didn't mince their words because they're making life miserable for civilians and cutting off the electricity to a country, particularly during the winter. Yeah, and I, so I mean that the the air defense that they recently delivered to Ukraine, the National Advanced Surface to Air Missile System or NASM. Um, was ex- actually extremely effective yesterday over the last 48 hours or so shooting down incoming missiles. It's had a 100% success rate, according to the U.S. government. Um, now, of course, they said the same thing about the Patriot missile in 
the Gulf War, and it turned out to not be the case. But um, but it appears that NASAMS has been extremely effective at shooting down at least incoming missiles. Um, air defenses are pretty much key to Ukraine's success at this point, because as we've seen on the battlefield, the Russian military is, I mean, the Russian Navy in the Black Sea is entirely spent. The Russian Army is not doing very well on the ground. So now it's kind of on the Air Force and the crew and the missile units to to win the war. And what they're doing is exactly what you referenced. They're shutting down electricity. They're shutting down, you know, power in the middle of the winter to people. And it is nothing but a war of terror at that point. There's no strategic, there's no tactical benefits from blowing up a power plant at a city hundreds of miles from the front line, other than to make life miserable for the civilians and hope it cuts out their war effort underneath them. So who builds the NASM system? Uh, I believe it's a U.S. system that's, contributed to by uh, several other NATO members. It's one of those more recent NATO projects where everybody kind of has a role in it. Yeah, I think they mentioned Spain. I believe so, yeah. I think it's Spain, and I think Norway had a role in it, too. Um, I'm not hugely strong on NASAMS. I'd have to look that up myself, but yeah. Well, it does raise the question of, you know, why aren't the Israelis supplying the Iron Dome, which is a very proven system that shoots down all kinds of missiles? Israel has been very hesitant to get directly involved in this conflict um, it, to the extent that President Zelensky has made some pretty obvious appeals to the Israeli leadership on Twitter, um, congratulating them on elections and things like that, where it's quite clear they're trying to curry favor with the Israelis. There have been some Israeli weapons that have turned up in Ukraine, but it's likely they were delivered by Turkey um, or another partner. Um, we have no reason to confirm at this point that Israel has been giving weapons to Ukraine. So do you think, though, that given this new strategy where Putin is targeting civilians and civilian infrastructure, can they fill the gap quickly? Or do you think the Russians are going to run out of missiles? I think they'll run out of missiles before they before they break the will of the Ukrainian people. I mean, the Ukrainian people have demonstrated time and time again that they can and will stand and fight for their freedom. And I think that if they have to endure a winter of hardship and cold to get there, I think they're going to do that. And in terms of all of the focus on the missiles that struck what, five kilometers inside the Polish border from Ukraine, killing a couple at a rural farm, it looks as though it's most likely that it was an Ukrainian air defense missile that was trying to shoot down a Russian missile and they landed in Poland. Is that the most likely scenario? Yeah, I mean, based on what we know already, uh, there's a, a couple of friends of mine, colleagues of mine who do um, – they're more missile nerds than I am – have looked at basically the fingerprint of this missile and have been able to identify it as a surface-to-air missile that was likely fired from Ukraine. Likely fired from Ukraine. Um, and I think that what's important to remember here is even if it is a Ukrainian missile as it appears to be, the Ukrainians didn't just fire it for the fun of it. They fired it because of an unprecedented missile and air raid that was underway. So had there not been an air raid underway, the Ukrainians would have had no reason to fire that missile and it would not have landed in Poland, which is, I think, it bears uh, remembering or, or noting at least. Sure. And it was probably fired at a caliber cruise missile, right? Absolutely, yeah. Again, they weren't just firing it for the fun of it. They were shooting at something that was coming toward that location. So, Right. So... What's your sense of how much cohesion there is in terms of this Ukraine defense group, which seems to be, you know, fairly based upon what General Millian Secretary Austin was saying is pretty robust? 
Yeah, I mean, if you had asked me about a similar organization a year ago, I probably would have been a lot more pessimistic and more of a naysayer. But honestly, the way that I've seen a lot of Ukraine's allies collaborating in the last nine months has been pretty astounding. Uh, I mean, just yesterday with the missile incident, regardless of who fired the missile, within several hours, every NATO member had called the Polish government and offered them their unqualified support. Which is, you know, not something that you normally see among European countries or among NATO countries. There's a little bit of dilly-dallying and feet dragging and whatnot. But when push comes to shove, they're all very much in line right now. And I think that this Ukraine contact defense group is similar in that uh, a lot of people understand the stakes, uh, the stakes at play here. That this is a very serious situation and that the time for the normal kind of politicking is not now. And so it appears that a lot of countries have, have kind of pulled out the stops almost to the extent of leaving themselves vulnerable defense-wise, which is something to be said. So in other words, they're depleting their own inventories? Absolutely, yes. So given that, that it's mostly NATO countries, the Ukraine Defense Contact Group, but there are up to 50 other members as well, and they're apparently all supplying equipment, what about Hungary, uh, countries that have been more pro-Russian? Are they, and Turkey, are they still on side? Yeah, and, and it's important to to note that with with especially with Hungary, they've always been, or in recent years, they've had an issue with pro-Russian candidates and politicians kind of sowing disinformation within the media space. But they've always been the people have always been rather pro-NATO, which is a weird dichotomy that they would be more. Uh, open to Russia's propaganda line, but ultimately more aligned with NATO. And I think that just goes back to the the history there uh, with the Soviet Union and with Hungary, um, that people don't want to see themselves dominated by Russia again. And they don't want to see themselves dominated by the U.S. either, which is, I think, kind of where we see that Hungary's political realm uh, developing. And what about Turkey? Turkey has been pretty supportive of Ukraine, um, extremely supportive of Ukraine. Uh, I think Turkey sees itself as almost a peacemaker in the situation, or they're trying to, and that's something that they've done across across the the region. Now they've done it uh, in Armenia and Azerbaijan, or at least tried to. They've tried to do it in Syria. They've tried to do it in Libya, and now they're trying to do it in between Russia and Ukraine, uh, trying to play this role of of peacemaker, of regional of regional hegemon. Um, Erdogan is standing up and realizing the strengths of his country. I think is what he's really doing. So. At the press conference today at the Pentagon, General Milley mentioned that they were supplying more HIMARS, the U.S., and I understand that they've also asked the South Koreans to help supply artillery shells for the howitzers that the U.S. supplied earlier, which both the HIMARS and the howitzers apparently have been the game changers from what the Pentagon has been saying. Yeah, I mean, the Ukrainians have used HIMARS in particular to to extremely deadly effect. Uh, namely, they shut down the bridges uh, leading from Kherson across the Dnieper River, but they shut them down so precisely. I mean, the images, it's a four-lane bridge, and two of the lanes on the left side have holes in them, and the lanes on the right side don't. The message being civilian cars can cross this bridge, but if tanks try to cross, the bridge will fall. You know, like that level of precision. And then they would follow that up with blowing up all of the arms depots and advanced weapons depots that the Russians would build before they would launch an offensive. And it basically cut the feet out from under the Russians every single time they tried to do something and then made it so they couldn't really resupply their forces and they kind of drained out on uh, the west side of the Dnieper River. So one of the members of the press asked Millie and Austin about 
the state of the Russian military, and they both said it's not doing well, to say the least. Uh, then they were asked about whether it would collapse, and Milley said, I, no, he doesn't think it's ready to collapse. What's your reading on it? I think that's correct. I don't think we're going to see the Russian army collapse fully. Uh, there's just too much structural rigidity within the system that'll keep it from fully collapsing the way that like the Germans did at the end of World War One. But I think that the idea that we'll see a route Another situation where the Russians, a retreat turns into a rout. I don't think that that's out of the question. Um, I think the next question just becomes what happens if Russian forces start retreating from Crimea and the Ukrainians move into Crimea. The question becomes what does Putin do at that point? And that's that's a real danger zone for us all uh, because the Russians have indicated that they would defend their territory with nuclear weapons. But they also claimed that Kherson was part of their territory and they haven't done anything about that with nuclear weapons. So. Whether it's bark or bite, I guess we have to see in the future. But are they moving on Crimea, the Ukrainians? It looks like they're, if they're not going to right now, they're preparing to, and they have definitely said they want to. Um, and so I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if they made an attempt for it. Well, the Russians apparently are, I mean, I, I don't know when, when they're going to run out of missiles. We talked about that earlier. But they are getting missiles and drones from Iran and artillery shells from North Korea. So it looks like their inventory is pretty depleted. Yeah, the Russian inventory is pretty depleted. And again, as they start pulling more stuff from Iran and North Korea, those are either shorter range or less precise weapons, right, than what they're what they started the war with. They're not going to have as many of these cruise missiles ready to go, these precision weapons ready to go. Um, and that's going to continue as the war continues. So what do you expect then to happen as, uh, as winter approaches? I mean, the, the war began in the winter back in February and the, the ground gets hard. And I mean, I don't know how you even dig a foxhole when the ground is frozen. But is this going to be like a World War One standoff on this long how long is it? It's almost a thousand kilometers, isn't it? The front. Yeah, um, I don't think I don't think we're going to see a standoff like that. I think the Ukrainians are going to continue pushing through the winter, as difficult as it may be, um, because ultimately a, a standoff situation where every, both sides kind of settle for a little bit that only benefits the Russians. That only benefits Putin's propaganda line and his political line that like, okay, let's all negotiate, let's talk this out, and then he can claim a victory of we liberated, quote-unquote, this many miles of territory. Um, I think Zelensky wants to push the Russians out while he's got momentum on his side. And uh, whether or not that's a good idea, I think, will be remain to be seen. But, yeah. So does the U.S. have any influence over him, over the Ukrainians? I mean, the deputy defense minister was at this briefing at the Pentagon today for the Ukraine defense contact group. But... Uh, President Biden has been very careful to make it clear that he's not going to get involved and impose any deals and diplomatic initiatives on Ukraine that they don't want to do, that they're the ones who have to decide if and when they talk to the Russians. Yeah, and I think that part of that might just be, I mean, part of that's recognizing the reality that the Ukrainians are going to do what they want to do more or less, regardless of what the U.S. says. But the U.S. does have some influence, right? I think when Biden makes statements like that, I think it's almost a political maximalist situation where he's saying, like, no, yeah, we have no control over the Ukrainians. They can 
it's their call when the war ends. And then later on, of course, the U.S. can step in and put pressure on the Ukrainians. But if we're saying that now, it kind of lets the Russians know, like, we've taken the, the leash off and we're not going to hold the Ukrainians back. So you better come to them and offer them a good deal or we're not going to do anything to help you, um, is at least how I've understood it to be diplomatically. Um, but I might be reading more into it than there is or reading the wrong message, you know. Well, just in closing, though, Aram, the fact that the Republicans did so poorly in the midterms and they'll have an extremely thin majority in the House, the Russian media and the war hawks in the Russian media were really counting on a Republican victory and hoping that when Kevin McCarthy said that they won't write a blank check for Ukraine, that the Republicans were going to cut funds. What are the chances of that happening still? I, I don't think the funding will be cut at this point. I think the the only chance that the Russians really had of the U.S. cutting funding was, yeah, a Republican majority in the House and the Senate, and they're not going to get that. So, Well, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Yeah, glad to be here. Uh, glad to be on again. And again, I've been speaking with Aram Shabanian, who is the Open Source Information Gathering Manager at New Lines Magazines. He recently taught in non-proliferation and terrorism studies at the Middlebury Institute for International Studies at Monterey, where his research focused on the Cold War and contemporary histories of Eastern Europe and the Middle East. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an inside look into the black box of Chinese communist leadership with insights from a researcher who has had access to the Politburo's archives. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Frank Dakota, who is a chair, professor of humanities at the University of Hong Kong. His books include The Discourse of Race in Modern China and People's Trilogy, which documents the lives of ordinary people under Mao and How to Be a Dictator. And his latest book just out is China After Mao, The Rise of a Superpower. Welcome to Background Briefing, Frank Dakota. Thank you for having me. And Frank, you're joining us from Hong Kong, and it is pretty obvious that recently Xi Jinping made himself leader for life, and he seems to be turning back the clock in terms of emulating Mao Zedong. After all, after Mao passed, there was the Deng Xiaoping reform era, and you've gotten a unique look inside that. So let's begin with that. How deceived do you think we were about this cycle of reform uh, followed by repression? Um, quite honestly, I think that uh, there was no attempt on the part of the People's Republic of China to deceive uh, us about the nature of their reform. They enshrined four fundamental principles into their constitution in the early 1980s. And these four cardinal principles are very much as follows. One, stick to the socialist path. Two, uphold the leadership of the Communist Party. Three, stick to Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong thought. And four, uphold the, the dictatorship of the proletariat. 
At no point has any one of these leaders, whether it was Deng Xiaoping or Chiang Zemin or Hu Jintao or Xi Jinping, or even the reformer Zhao Ziyang in the 1980s, said anything even vaguely in favor of the separation of powers. They've said time and again, what we want is a socialist system, not a capitalist one. What we want is a monopoly over power, not separation of powers. So um, on the part of outsiders, maybe there has been a willingness to be deceived. And that, of course, goes uh, across the board um, from Kevin Rudd in Australia uh, all the way to pretty much uh, every single American president from Nixon onwards. The idea fundamentally that somehow China was not a really communist country and it was in a transition towards democracy and it should be helped along on the way. So people like Xia Jiang and Hu Yaobang, who were the leaders at the time, or actually the Tiananmen protests were in honoring Hu Yaobang, and then Xia Jiang was in the head of the Communist Party at that point and considered to be a reformer. He got purged after the crackdown on the students. So do we have to revisit that? Were, were they those two figures not really reformers? Well, they were Marxist-Leninists, and they, they were pretty much uh, uh, convinced of the superiority of a, a, a socialist system in terms of economics. So we may see them as leaders who were far more inclined to a softer approach in the 1980s, but ultimately, George Young himself in 1987 in the mouthpiece of the party made it crystal clear that there would never be any separation of powers in the People's Republic of China. Time and again, he stressed the superiority of socialism. He went to Shenzhen to say what we are setting up here are special economic zones, not special political zones. We must fight capitalism, quote unquote. When he meets um, Honecker, Erich Honecker, head of East Germany in 1987, and Honecker complains about, about what is referred to as bourgeois liberalization, in other words, a certain degree of openness, Zhao Young says, 30 years from now, when people in China will be convinced of the superiority of socialism, we will restrain further the scope of bourgeois liberalization. Uh, I think um, quite extraordinary in how he's been able to predict uh, what has happened indeed. In other words, very much economic growth leading to more of an entrenched uh, security state, more surveillance, uh, less openness when it comes to the flow of people, goods, ideas, and of course, capital. So in your new book, Frank Dakota, China After Mao, The Rise of a Superpower, you had access to the records of Li Rui, uh, who was secretary to uh, Mao Zedong. He spent, what, 20 years in jail during the insanity and then was able to, there was a period, I guess in, in the Deng Xiaoping period, where you as a scholar had access to the inside of this black box known as the Politburo. Then, of course, when Xi Jinping came along, the door closed on that. So tell us what you've learned. Um, well, 
the, the diary of Lee Ray is at the Hoover Institution and it is extraordinarily detailed in that he is very much in the 1980s and 90s and beyond in touch with the top leadership. Uh, he's in charge of an organization that appoints people at top positions. Um, so his diary is extraordinarily revealing. But beyond that, of course, I went to the archives um, all the way up till 2019 when, when COVID started and was able to read a great amount of material, not just the 1980s, but occasionally also beyond the 1990s, in a few cases up to 2008. And um, well, what you what comes out of it, in my mind, um, of course, there's a wealth of material and, and you can't just summarize it in, in two minutes flat. But what struck me most is the extent to which there are all sorts of unintended consequences. And of course, the extent to which these unintended consequences have been uh, covered up. Uh, one example is, of course, the one child policy, which is enforced, uh, but results in a demographic uh, decline today. But even more so, I thought what was remarkable is how in the 1980s, Joseph Young himself um, presides over a certain amount of decentralization in which local governments are gave, given a bigger say in how they run their own economy so that they are incentivized to produce more. But the result, unfortunately, is that these local governments set, all, set up all sorts of barriers to protect, to protect their own economy from outsiders. So you get roadblocks, you get, you, you, you get sort of informal boundaries to uh, prevent outsiders from snapping up raw materials. The result is that by the late 1980s, instead of a unified national market, what you have is a sort of loose patchwork of independent little fiefdoms who are very jealous and protective of their own resources. And to some extent, that is still very much the case to this day. Xi Jinping talks about the need to have more domestic consumption, but it's very difficult to ship goods from one part of the country to another. Well, that really struck me. And of course, the other thing that is quite remarkable is that the overall share of GDP among ordinary people is one of the lowest in modern history. In other words, there may very well be growth, but the amount of that that goes back to ordinary people is actually very, very, very small. In that sense, there's not much of a difference in the China before 76 under Mao and the China we've had over the last uh, 40, 50 years. In other words, um, to put it in a, in, in a local saying, uh, the temple is rich, but the people are poor. So let's talk a little bit. I mentioned the period of madness, the, the Cultural Revolution. And Xi Jinping was a victim of that insanity. And he was publicly humiliated, uh, I think, at the age of 13. And then his mother informed on him and he was sent to the country at the age of 15 to do backbreaking work in northeast China. And his father, of course, was considered a, a reactionary because he was somewhat liberal, I guess, or something of a reformist, even though we're, we're re-evaluating that very notion. I just find it so extraordinary that a human being that went through that experience would want to double down on Marxism and Maoism. It's, um, it's not extraordinary at all. I, I can understand why you think this is puzzling, but you have to understand what the Cultural Revolution was. When in 1966... Uh, Chairman Mao starts the Cultural Revolution. Of course, he has several things in mind. And, um, you know, we'll take more than a minute just to explain what is happening. But at heart, 
he is concerned that the same thing might happen to him uh, as happened to Stalin. In other words, in 1956, three years after the death of Joseph Stalin in the Soviet Union, Nikita Khrushchev denounces his erstwhile uh, leader Stalin. This is the start of de-Stalinization. This 1956, all along mouthings, what will happen if somebody starts um, the process of demalification? What if somebody starts undermining my legacy? Now, he's smart enough to realize Stalin never spotted Khrushchev as a potential nemesis, as a potential enemy. So what he does from 66 all the way till roughly 67, 68, is that progressively he allows ordinary people, not party members, ordinary people to not only denounce each other, but also denounce leading members of the Communist Party. This is unprecedented in the history of any Communist Party anywhere. In North Korea, Kim Il-sung looks on in disbelief, the same, of course, from the Soviet Union. How and why would a leader of a Communist Party allow ordinary people to actually criticize the Communist Party? Well, that is, in a nutshell, what happens in 1966 and 67. With people like Zhou Enlai and Liu Shaoqi and Deng Xiaoping taken to task, some of them are chucked in prison where Liu Shaoqi will die uh, as a result of, of probably torture and extreme neglect. So that is what happens. That is the issue that concerns a great number of party members that Mao allowed ordinary people to criticize them, and they are determined after the death of the chairman in 1976, never, ever to allow ordinary people to take to task members of the Communist Party again. So from 1976 to this day, they have this sort of split approach. On the one hand, ordinary people are given basic economic freedoms. They can trade, they can open a shop, they can cultivate the land as they see fit. They can sell the produce on the market. Yet on the other hand, an iron determination on the part of the leadership to repress their political aspirations. And this is, of course, um, signaled in 1989 when 100,000 soldiers and 200 tanks move into Beijing to crush the population and is signaled time and again afterwards. So from that point of view, Xi Jinping is no different uh, from his predecessors, including Deng Xiaoping. They, they are afraid of their own people. And they have seen uh, the extent to which ordinary people can criticize the Communist Party uh, at the height of the Cultural Revolution. They're determined not to allow this to, hap to, to happen ever again. So how much, though, did the collapse of the Soviet Union have an effect on them? Because that actually coincided with the Tiananmen protests and the subsequent massacre. You recall that Gorbachev visited at the time and then left. And the difference is, of course, that Gorbachev and the, and the KGB who, who backed him, they thought that this idea of glasnost, which means whatever comes off the tip of your tongue, would be necessary to, in order to stimulate perestroika, which is the economic restructuring. And, of course, it unraveled the entire country because the, suddenly the emperor had no clothes. Now, the Chinese communists have been quite the opposite and quite clever. They've allowed what seems like unlimited perestroika, but absolutely no glasnost. Yes, absolutely. And this, of course, goes back already to the early 1980s when Zhao Ziyang himself warns 
about not so much the Soviet Union, but of course, uh, Poland's. When in Poland, Solidarność appears, you know, when a labor union um, manages uh, throughout the 1980s to acquire not just great political clout, but also legitimacy. And that is what they wish to avoid at all cost, that a union might be recognized or that you might have to deal with workers protesting in, in the streets. So yes, from the very beginning, there's an attempt to constrain openness in terms of ideas, but to allow some sort of economic restructuring to take place. Now back to the Soviet Union, it uh, pretty much implodes in 1991. It has become an empty shell as all this, the Soviet republics declare their own independence. What is the uh, effect on China? Well, I can put it in a nutshell, before then, the slogan is only socialism can save China. And after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the slogan is only China can save socialism. <laughs> so very much um, a, a shift in perspective in that the PRC now sees itself as the, 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 the true remaining socialist country and, of course, defender of socialist regimes uh, around the world. And, and that pretty much is the case to this very day. A, a belief in the superiority of a socialist system. You might ask me, what is a socialist system? Allow me to anticipate this question because there's so much, uh, there's so much um, poor understanding about it. A socialist economy is one in which the means of production belong directly or indirectly to the state. That means that the state controls capital, energy, land, labor, raw materials, etc. That is still very much the case to this day. So when we talk about some sort of Chinese capitalism, this is simply nonsense. The land belongs to the state. The, 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 the four banks control capital. So what we've had is a very much a reinforced socialist economy in which the state can control the means of production and decide uh, who should get subsidies who should get cheap energy, who should get land for free, and how much unprotected labor should be paid. So the notion that Chinese communism works well in practice, but not in theory, you don't buy that? Well, this is a very difficult thing to say. It works for whom? That's the key question. It goes back to what I said earlier on. Um, the overall share... Um, of households, families, ordinary people of GDP in the People's Republic of China is one of the very lowest in modern history. They have to look who, who profits from all of this. And the other issue is, um, what are these numbers? What does GDP mean uh, when the, 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 the ways in which um, the economy is calculated in a one-party state is very different from what we have? There's not much accountability. There's no freedom of speech. There's no independent judicial system. The finding out anything about the PRC is extremely complicated. And frequently it appears, once you start reading some of the archives inside the, the party vault, so to speak, you find out that the way GDP is calculated is very different and frequently doesn't mean all that much. I'll give you one example. At the height of the Asian crisis in 97, 98, um, roughly two-fifths, 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 four-tenths, 40% of all 
consumer goods churned out by state enterprises in the People's Republic of China do not find an outlet. They are hoarded in warehouses. They cannot be sold. It's overcapacity in sewing machines and bicycles and televisions and all, and all sorts of goods. Well, we've seen an enormous amount of uh, overcapacity in real estate, entire cities that are empty. So just give us your version of what this economic miracle is about then, because we've seen it, you know, Chinese tourists now travel around the world and go back home. I mean, a lot has changed. Yes, a lot, has, a lot has changed. There are tourists traveling around the world. And then there are, of course, children in the countryside who cannot afford a pair of uh, reading glasses. That's the China today. The China today was some, a large proportion of the population, 600 million people, uh, live on uh, what something like 40, 50 US dollars a, a month, according to uh, Li Keqiang, the, the one who was number two until recently. So, as I said, the temple is rich, the people are poor, the monks are rich too. <laughs> so there are great disparities there. But the key point I wish to make is that this is not just a, some sort of economic miracle. This is a system that has been able, thanks to its control of the means of production, to create a very unlevel playing field in which not even Bangladesh can actually compete in the production of, of cheap garments because Bangladesh uh, cannot continuously subsidize uh, capital, energy, land, labor in order for its factories to export to the WTO. So that's one point. The other point really is that we don't know. Such vast amounts of money have been poured into this economy from the 1970s onwards um, that we just don't know whether it's viable or not. There's a mountain of debt that has been continuously accumulating over the past few decades. And thanks again to the fact that this is a one-party state, this crisis, this long, this, this wall of that uh, can be kept under some sort of control, but it will not go away. And it's reached a point where today it seems to be pretty much uh, intractable. So that really is the key question. Uh, what are the long-term consequences of rapid growth, which by definition is uneven growth, and how can it get back to some sort of more even economic development? How is it going to deal with a mountain of debt, hidden or otherwise? But, but that's the key question. Sure, but just in the last minute here, I'm sure that our listeners want to know after this meeting in Bali between Xi Jinping and Biden, the declaration from Biden was there'll be no new Cold War. They both agreed that nuclear weapons should not be used, particularly in Ukraine. Do you think that there's going to be a Cold War or some military action over Taiwan? Well, we have been in a Cold War um, roughly since 1945. Maybe if you are in Poland and the Soviet Union collapses or in Latvia, uh, you think this is the end of the Cold War. But if you're in South Korea and you have hundreds of missiles pointed at you by North Korea, or if you're in Taiwan, you have hundreds of missiles pointed towards you, then this doesn't really feel like it is an end of the Cold War. So in that sense, um, certainly in Asia, um, the Cold War has ne never ended on the, on the contrary. Well, Frank Dakota, I thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
And again, I've been speaking with Frank Dakota, who's the Chair Professor of Humanities at the University of Hong Kong. His books include The Discourse of Race in Modern China and People's Trilogy, which documents the lives of ordinary people under Mao and How to Be a Dictator. And his latest book just out is China After Mao, The Rise of a Superpower. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America Well